Well, we're in John chapter 12 today, and um, uh, as you turn there, let me just share with you that there's an odd tradition going on in the United States, well, it has been going on for the United States for a very long time, when something big happens, something profound, something major, in New York City, they'll have something called a ticker tape parade. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these before. The first such parade was held, uh, the first such parade was held back in, um, uh, in the early days there. Uh, when the Statue of Liberty was fully constructed, they held a ticker tape parade. Now, for those of you younger folks that don't know what ticker tape is, the, the folks back in the day didn't get their stock quotes on their smartphones, nor did they get them on their computers. They had these little machines that spit out, uh, that was connected to the stock market, stock exchange, and they would, they would just feed out tape, and the tape would have the latest stock quotes on it, and they would rip that off. And you see this in old movies, they'd rip it off, and they'd read the, look for their stock and find it, and and then they'd throw it away because, you know, as soon as they knew the price, it was kind of outdated information. So, and that would just happen on a continuous basis. Well, that, all that ticker tape, all that, uh, all that paper got thrown into the streets during this parade and thus was christened the name Ticker Tape Parade. There's been other ticker tape parades, all, a lot of them over time, but here's some notable ones. The, the uh, history-making Olympic athlete Jesse Owens received a ticker tape parade. Charles Lindbergh, the famous pilot, received a ticker tape parade. The Apollo 11 astronauts had one as well. You know the, the first guys to land on the moon? Neil Armstrong, you know, those guys. Uh, the New York Yankees. Now, I don't know why they get a ticker tape parade, because it seems like they win the World Series about every other year, right? But uh, they get ticker tape parades. And then the, 200, two, uh, the 2015 Women's Soccer World Cup team got a ticker tape parade. There's been many others. But what do all these things have in common? What do all these parades have in common? Well, the thing that they have in common is that they're all celebrating something that's very uncommon, right? Uh, I did not get a ticker tape parade this morning. I mean, imagine. You get up in the morning, you read your Bible, and somebody whisks you into the, a fancy convertible, drives you to New York City, and, and you're just sitting in the car. Yes, I read my Bible this morning, you know. I mean, I had coffee, you know, the crowd's just going nuts. Ah, he had coffee. What kind was it? No, you, you, you have a ticker tape parade because it's very uncommon, right? These are parades to celebrate, celebrate feats that don't happen every day. Well, today we're, we're sort of celebrating uh, this thing called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I need to give you some background for this, right? Jesus did a lot of his earthly ministry up in the region of Galilee, which was, which was far north of Jerusalem. And, and here's some, just for scale. Jesus did a lot of his, if, if Delaware, Ohio is Jerusalem, Jesus did a lot of his ministry in Cleveland, okay? In the Cleveland area, all right? But now and again, he would make his way down and, and uh, visit, the, uh, visit Jerusalem. And in John's gospel, uh, a couple of times that he visited Jerusalem did not go well. If you read in John chapter 8, verse 59, and John chapter 10, verse 31, uh, those were instances where Jesus' teaching led the people to want to arrest him? No. They were picking up rocks, getting ready to kill him. So, I don't know about you, but like, I don't know, if, if everybody in Marion wants to kill me, how often am I going to Marion? Never, right? I'm not going back to Marion. But here is Jesus 
Jesus and his disciples, once his disciples, Peter specifically, had made the good confession. In other words, Jesus said, you know, who do these people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And when they said, when, G- when Peter made the confession that you are the Christ, they made their way. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> to give you, uh, bring up speed a little bit more, Jesus first, in, in chapter 11 of John, Jesus first comes into Bethany where he finds out that Lazarus has died, right? He finds out before he gets there, honestly. He, he finds out that Lazarus has died and he resurrects Lazarus, who's been in the grave some four days. He resurrects him from the dead. And almost immediately after he does that, he, he then moves on to this little other village called Ephraim and, and he kind of stays out of the public eye for a while. But then he's going to come back into Bethany and then eventually back into Jerusalem. Bethany's a little village outside of Jerusalem. Here's another thing that you need to understand about the situation in Jerusalem. The, the, the population is expanding because Passover is coming. It's the high Jewish holiday. And so, you know, Delaware, Ohio is a, is a college town, and our town gets bigger in the school year when all the students are here. It gets slightly smaller when they're gone. Um, and, you know, college towns are like that. But then there's also places where uh, big festivals are held and the population swells. And that's what's going on here, Jerusalem. People are coming. Jewish people from the, the entire nation and even outside the nation are coming to celebrate the Passover. And you have to understand that this is a very political situation as well. There's some players in this, in this thing. The Roman leadership, the Jewish leadership, the people, the disciples... People meaning the citizens of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, the people that are there to worship. The Roman leadership and Jerusalem and the surrounding region there, Judea, is in control of Pilate. And his job, he's got his marching orders from the, from the Roman Empire. He will be considered a success if he maintains law and order, right? He's got this big celebration going on, people coming into town, security is up. And his job is to maintain law and order. He doesn't want word getting back to Rome that he's done a bad job by letting things get out of hand in Jerusalem. So that's his motivation, right? The Jewish leadership, well, the Jewish leadership, they're there, and they're frustrated with the fact that that they have to live under Roman occupation. They don't like that. Uh, they are looking forward to the day when the, Jew- the kingdom of Israel will be restored and a king will be set on the throne and the, the Romans will be out of there. But for now, they've got to play the political game. Why? Because Rome has given them some authority. They, they get to rule on some things, the Sanhedrin does, the collection of Jewish leadership. They get to rule on some things, but they, there's some other things they can't do. They can't crucify anybody. They can't kill anybody without Roman approval. So what are the what's the Jewish leadership? Well, they're you know they're simmering under there. They're trying to maintain control of the Jewish people, the the worship of God, and, and also they're kind of like you know secretly wanting the Romans to get out of there. But they're playing their little political game. You got the disciples, Jesus' disciples, who probably at this point all evidence points us to the the understanding that they're thinking that Jesus is going to come in to Jerusalem and set things right. They're gonna, he's going to fix things. He's going to make things good again. I mean, they've, they've seen uh, his miracle-working power. He obviously, uh, to Peter, James, and John, he's been transfigured. They've seen his glory 
and they're probably thinking he's going to come in and set things in shape. And then you've got the people. The people remind me of that passage in Ephesians 4 that says, you know, so that we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wave, wind of doctrine, you know. The people are kind of like that. You know, on, on Palm Sunday, they're saying, Hosanna in the highest. And on Friday, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. So they're very fickle, fickle people. This is the environment where Jesus is entering in. So the, the question that we're going to deal with today is this. How does Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem sharpen our understanding of how to live today? I think it does. I think it help, it's helpful. But let's get into it and, and find out. We're in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the first thing that we see in this text is the anointing of Jesus. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Remember, he had been in Bethany. He had healed Lazarus, and then shortly thereafter, he had made his way to Ephraim. So he's now coming back to Bethany. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Apparently, Jesus got out of town so quickly, they didn't even have the opportunity. Maybe Lazarus hadn't taken a shower yet. I don't know. I mean, I heard he stank pretty bad. Uh, maybe uh, for whatever reason, they hadn't had a celebratory dinner yet. So this is what they're doing. Uh, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment and made, uh, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his many disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, which is a day's wages? 300 days' wages is a significant amount of money. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. And I just want to be honest with you, this next phrase is disputed in Greek. It, the, the English translations are kind of debated. Anyway, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's the, the, the disputed part. For, this next part is not disputed, the poor you will always have with me, with you, but you do not always have me. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's get into this a little bit here. What we see here is unrestrained honor, first of all, in what Mary did. It, it, it would be a crime if I didn't tell you and remind you that Messiah means the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And so here we see Jesus, or we see Mary anointing Jesus' feet. She worshiped him with abandon. What do I mean by that? She worshiped him at great expense to herself. Some scholars speculate that this flask of ointment, which Mark's gospel told us that she broke open, that this flask of ointment was so valuable, it may have been considered a family heirloom. It was worth 300 denarii. 300 days wages. She worshiped him with abandon, meaning she worshiped him uh, at great cost. And 
you know, women's hair, you guys know, vary in length for how, from how long they grow it. And, but whatever, however long her hair was, she had to get probably down on her hands and knees and take her hair and rub his feet. So this was also with great humility that she worshipped at the feet of Jesus. Now, anointing is in different places throughout the Bible, but, um, but here's a couple of specific places that we can look to. Uh, in the Old Testament law, the archetypical or the, the iconic priest figure is Aaron. And when Aaron was named high priest, he was anointed. And what, do the, what does the priest do? The priest bears the weight of sin, of the sin of the nation, back in the Old Testament, bears the weight of the sin into the presence of God. And if you don't see the, the analogies there, Jesus is being anointed and he is referred to as our great high priest and he's going to bear the sin of mankind in the presence of God. Anointing also takes us back to David, the iconic king of Israel. David was not the first king of Israel. He was actually the second. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul sinned, and God wanted to remove him from his office. And so God sent Samuel, one of the judges, to go and to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. And in this private little ceremony, in this private kind of little family between the family and Saul, uh, Samuel, family and Samuel ceremony, he anointed David king of Israel. And here we see in this little dinner party that they're having for Lazarus and the Jesus and his disciples, Mary is anointing Jesus, who is of the line of David, who we now understand as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It also, doesn't, it, it also doesn't escape my uh, view that one of the things that Jesus is going to do through his life is that he's going to call people from all nations to himself, right? And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Perhaps you have. If you've ever been on a mission trip to a foreign country, like when I say foreign country, I don't mean Canada. I mean somewhere where they speak a different, Eng- uh, different language um, and they have a different culture. Maybe Canada is that way. I don't know. They say A a lot. Take off, eh? I don't know. But uh, you go to a different culture, you go to a different country, and you're, if you're on a mission trip, you know, you're going through the customs and the airports and all and then you get to the people that you're actually going to serve, and invariably some of them are believers. And my experience has been immediately I have, we have a lot in common and we have a lot to talk about because we're all followers of Jesus Christ. Though we read from, one of us maybe reads from a Spanish Bible and I read from an English Bible we have a lot in common. So Jesus is building for himself on this earth a kingdom of followers that will be that are in fellowship. And so it doesn't escape me passages like Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I think he's talking about fellow God-fearers there. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. There's the anointing imagery again, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. 
This anointing has great significance that Mary is carrying out. And she understood, apparently, who Jesus was. And so, before we leave this part, let me say, if you really understand who Jesus is, if you really understand uh, the value that his death, burial, and resurrection is in your life, then why not worship him with abandon? Why not worship him? What is money in, in light of our souls, right? What is pride in light of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Mary seems to understand that. We also see unconcealable greed. I won't spend too much time on this, but suffice it to say that Judas's greed was pretty obvious. The writer, John here, uh, says, yeah, we, we all kind of knew that Judas like helped himself to whatever was in the money bag, and he wasn't all that concerned about the poor. And so Judas was operating his life not in the fear of the Lord, but in the fear of man. He, didn't get, he wanted to get his cut of the loot. He was in it for himself. You know, one of the things I think it's good to ask ourselves every once in a while as Christians is, why are you, why are you here? Why do you come to this place and, and worship? Why, does, why is it that when, when the service starts and the, the person giving the announcements calls us to order, we all get silent, and then we sing, our, join our voices together in song, and then we, you know, we give our, our, an offering, we, we have fellowship. Why do we do these things? Do, do we do these things because it looks good before other people? Because it's socially acceptable, and, and this is what, in the circles that I run, I want to be known as a good man, a good woman, and so this is what I do. Well, coming to this place for those reasons is kind of puts you in the same camp as Judas. We're here, we're here to worship the Lord, and to extol all His virtues, and to think about all his ways and to adopt them as, as our ways as they are articulated in his word. We are to be living, worshiping God, well, Jesus followers. We also see in this text unedited acceptance. This is shocking, right? That Jesus would accept this expensive gift. Why? Because helping the poor is almost universally accepted in our culture in many cultures, as something that's good to do. It's hard to find someone who argue with that, right? What could be better than helping the poor by giving them the very basics of food, clothing, and shelter in order to help them survive in this life? But Jesus points to the fact that there is something better, something higher. Jesus is about to accomplish something that has more purpose, a greater purpose, a greater value than helping the poor. Few people can make that claim, just Jesus can. He's going to take his perfectly lived, sinful life and lay it down through a torturous death on the cross in order to provide salvation for all people, everyone who believes, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, in this world, the poor people will always be with you. However, only one will be able to carry out the work 
of salvation for all people, the offer of salvation to all people, and that is Jesus. Interesting. I find it fascinating. Next we see the reaction to Jesus' popularity, and this is kind of eye-opening when we read it. Verse 9, when the crowd... When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him. Now that's interesting stuff, right? They're not coming out just to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of many of the Jew, uh, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, uh, I think we could all agree. Could we, could we not all agree that if, if some pastor here in town had uh, made the claim that they had raised someone from the dead? By the way, I've heard that claim before. I, can't get the guy, I, I couldn't get the guy to produce the person, but that would have been interesting. But let's say that the, 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 we, there's a pastor in town that, that's claimed that he's raised some from, someone from the dead. He's got the medical records to back it up and the person standing right next to him. That, and you know maybe even some witnesses that said, yep, he was dead for four days. And this pastor raised him up from the dead. Can we all agree that that would be an interesting thing to go see? That would be an interesting thing to go see. And that's apparently they're not coming just to see Jesus, but they're also coming to see Lazarus as well. And so the crowd came to see not just Jesus, but the proof. The proof. You know, uh, while we're on this topic, I just want to say something really quickly, which is oftentimes I find that in the Christian church, that some, some, some churches, some church leaders try to entice people to come to church with spectacle. Have you noticed that? On Sunday, this is not happening, by the way, but on Sunday hypothetically, our pastor is going to go up in a hot air balloon and then bungee jump out, come to worship, and then afterwards he'll preach the sermon, dangling upside down with a microphone from the hot air balloon, right? Now, that might get some feet in the door, but did those people come to see, did those people come to hear the message? No, they came to see some crazy pastor jump out of a hot air balloon and not hit his head on the pavement, right? That's what they came to see. So we need to be very careful, folks, that we, that we are uh, not doing the bait and switch with people, that we're, we're telling people, come, come with us, come and worship, come and learn about Jesus, learn the way of life. Because in many ways, Jesus' ways are so much better than the spectacle of, of that. Anyway, that's what the, people, the crowd came to see. They came to see the proof. The chief priests, however, per, per planned to remove the evidence. I don't know... I don't know if you know this or not. I've had the opportunity, Tracy and I have, to travel to Israel. And do you know that every single day, uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but on a regular basis and almost daily, archaeologists are discovering new digs, new sites, new places in Israel where they're discovering artifacts or, or the ruins of places that buttress the reality that this Bible is true. There was a recent significant archaeological find Pastor Aaron made me aware of, of an amulet, uh, it's called a curse amulet, that was found near uh, 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 what they think is the ruins of an altar that really 
provides veracity and evidence to the fact that, that the biblical account is accurate. And also, actually, that, that, that discovery shot some holes in a, a different view of the Bible, a, a view that's taken by some who, who believe the Bible is not the inspired and errant word of God, but a collection of stories. It shot some holes in that theory and buttresses our understanding of God's word. And anyway, as, as, as these archaeological sites are discovered... There's a a whole department in the government of Israel that goes out to these sites and then secures them. Why? Because if you don't secure those sites, folks that are against God and his word will come out with pickaxes and sledgehammers and destroy them in an attempt to erase them off the face of the earth. So they can see, see, ha, there is no God. At least not the God of the Bible. It reminds me a little bit of these these leaders, these chief priests, they're trying to not just get rid of Jesus, but to remove Lazarus. Because why? Because he serves as evidence of who Jesus is. And we're going to get rid of him. All right. Now, the triumphal entry. I, I'm calling it entering into the chaos. Why? Because it's, it's a chaotic situation. There's all these political things at play. There's all these, these different people operating out of fear of man and fear of institutions that are coming to play. And Jesus is entering right into the middle of it, keeping, keeping in mind that he's been threatened to be killed or they've attempted to stone him twice. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, Jesus is in Bethany, right? And he's going to come into Jerusalem. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. And he... Had been and, and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with them, with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Take a look at this. First of all, we see Jesus the Christ. That, that word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's, the, it's his theological title. It means he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That's what the Christ means. And he, you know, for so much of Jesus' ministry, whenever he would perform a healing act, a miracle, he would tell the people, tell, no, don't tell anybody, let's keep this quiet. You know, my hour has not yet come. Jesus would say things like that. And now here comes Jesus and he's right out in the open. And when, when people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, Jesus is not correcting them. He's not silencing them. He simply proceeds along the path on top of a donkey as prophesied. By the way, it's, it's significant that he's coming in to town on a donkey because like I said earlier, he's been, his life has been attempted twice. 
They tried to take his life twice. He's coming into town. He's riding on a donkey, not on a war horse, not with his army. He's coming on on a donkey, which is symbolic of peace. He's coming in peace. He's coming in peace into a very chaotic situation. Now, if you flip back in your Bibles a few pages to John chapter 6, let's just talk about this for a minute. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, the context here is the feeding of the 5,000, this other miracle that Jesus did, this other great thing. He fed the 5,000, and then in uh, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we read this, And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I'm going to try to connect some things together here for you real quick before we get too far. The ticker tape parade. Why do we have a ticker tape parade? We have a ticker tape parade because somebody has done something great and we want to, we want to be there for it. We want to honor them, right? We want to We want to make a big deal about it. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, and this is not the first time that they've tried to make him king. The the last time that he perceived that they were going to try to make him king was after he had done a great miracle. He had done this great thing in providing food for all these people out of almost nothing. Now, keep in mind, Jesus had just healed Lazarus, not healed him. He had brought Lazarus back from the dead. And so the people are coming out, and they're saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I don't know if you're connecting the same things my brain connects, but are they there because they're recognizing Jesus as this different kind of king, this, this, this one that's going to be the savior of the world to take away their sins, or are they still thinking, this guy's capable, he can do great things, even God has enabled him to do miracles, he'll be the one to save us from the Romans, he'll be the one to set up his kingdom, he'll be the one to restore the glory days of Israel. It's hard to tell, isn't it? It's hard to tell. Time will tell. And a few days later, when they don't get what they want, the crowd will turn. You know, the history, historically speaking, back in the days of the judges, when Samuel was the judge of Israel, he had two sons, and those sons were kind of corrupt. They weren't leading well in Israel. And so the people of Israel cried out to Samuel for a king. Give us a king. Give us a king. Big, big thing. Like the nations around us have kings. Give us a king like them to rule over us, to lead us. And this, this you know, obviously hurt Samuel. But God spoke to Samuel in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and told him, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their king. And they want a human king in their place. And can, I, can we just all admit that with the exception of a few bright spots, 
that the kingdom of Israel, as far as king leadership goes, was kind of a catastrophe. Yes, there was a few bright spots. There was Josiah made a lot of spiritual reforms, and there was David and Solomon did some good things before he kind of went off the reservation. Well, big time went off the reservation. But it was kind of a catastrophe. Why? Folks, our king, (laughs) the one that rules over us, is to be God. And yet we live on this earth. I mean, listen, I, I, I I I dabble a bit in social media. So this is what I saw on social media last week. It really fits into the sermon. Elon Musk had a good week last week. Uh, Elon Musk, you know, the Tesla guy, he uh, opened up one of the biggest factories, if not the biggest factory for automobiles on the face of the planet. He bought 9% of Twitter and now sits on their board of directors and Twitter kind of, for, for folks that are, uh, well, folks like me that are ignorant enough to be on Twitter, um, uh, uh, they, it, there's a lot of conversations that, get, it, it, it could be argued that's where the, the news media gets their news. Is a lot of they get a lot of news on Twitter, so he sits on the board of directors of that now and is kind of opening up some possibilities for free speech on that platform. And I think he delivered his uh, his uh, SpaceX company delivered someone to the International Space Station. I think that was his week this week, and so social media is saying, when is this guy Elon Musk going to run for president? Do you see? Do you not see the parallels? He's doing great things. Look at his capability in the space program. Look at his capability in building electric cars. Look at his capability of securing free speech for Americans. Let's make him our king. And I can pretty much promise you that that would end in catastrophe because he's not Jesus. (laughs) Yes, he probably would do some good things, but he's probably going to do some evil as well just like any human being would do. The people were jubilant. Why? Because if you go back and read Psalm 2, well, just listen, I'll just take a second and and read a little bit of Psalm 2 for you. Go back and read Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Skip down and we read, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, this is God's king, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings of the earth, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. They're probably thinking, here He is, here's the Psalm 2 King, and He's going to come and He's going to restore the kingdom on the earth and we can all follow Him. And they don't understand yet what Jesus is is doing. Yes, he is going to fulfill Psalm chapter 2, but not now. Then you see the jeering leadership. The jeering leadership. The, the, the Jews, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, well, at least the Pharisaical ones, the Pharisees, they say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world, or sorry, the world has gone after him. Now, 
I have, a, I have a decent sense of humor, and what I'm about to tell you to me is hilarious. It may not be to you. But the way that John arranges his material and tells us this gospel story, this, 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 this narrative, is as soon as the, the Pharisees get done saying, the whole world has gone after him, look at the next section, which we're going to read next. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, okay? So we're in Jerusalem, we're in the seat of Jewish worship, and here comes a collection of people looking for Jesus who are not Jewish. They're Greek. So the Pharisees say, look, the whole world has gone, or the, the world has gone after him, and here comes a representation from, not the Jewish people, but from people outside the Jewish faith, from the world, the Greeks. So they came to Philip, probably because Philip, Philip and Andrew are both Greek names. They're not Jewish names, they're Greek names. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Now, I need to prepare you for this, because this, is kind of, this was perplexing to me, and so I need to prepare you. Jesus is not going to turn and have a conversation. The Greeks, Andrew and Philip are coming and say, hey, there's some Greek guys here. There's some Greek guys here and they want to have a conversation with you. Would you like to meet with them? Kind of like a personal assistant, you know. Uh, they're, they're, Jesus is not going to take this opportunity to take that meeting. He's going to take this, he's going to take the reality that these Greek people have come to speak to him To say that whereas before he said, don't tell anybody about what just happened and my hour has not yet come, he's going to take the opportunity of the world coming to him, seeking him, to say, now is the time and here is my mission. Look at what it says. The hour has come. This is Jesus speaking, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see the mission that he's proclaiming here? He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of the light. Now is the time. This is the hour. And Jesus begins to unveil what He's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to be like that grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's, he's putting Himself in parallel to that so that when He is lifted up and, and all people... Uh, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. And when I am lifted up, I will draw people from all over the world to Myself. It's incredible. Again, the nation, whether they're looking for, they're still looking for the King. And what does Jesus say? He says that His hour has come and then He reveals His plan. He reveals His plan. Now, I want to make one last observation before I close us. And I really would encourage you, I really want to encourage you to get your hands on that reading plan. It's just like a, a chapter or two a day, uh, including, and I, and I would encourage you to spend most, most reflection time uh, on uh, Saturday, on Holy Saturday. Uh, but, but, that thing is that sheet that I put together. You could do that in five minutes a day, or you could spend an hour on it if you want, because there's some reflection questions there. But make this a meaningful week. But but let me let me end with a question before I finish up, which is this: How do we know that Jesus, this Jesus, is really the King, our King, that God sent into the world? How do we know? Well, anybody who's a student of the Bible or the stu a student of human history, anybody who understands what's going on in Russia, between Russia and Ukraine right now knows this. That in this world, we look to capable, strong leadership. We give them power and authority. We imbue them with power and authority, whether it's through a vote or whether they take control of power through some sort of dic dictatorship. They raise up an army, they go fight wars, and they secure freedoms, they create borders, and, and, and for a time they may enjoy popularity, and then their regime falls. Because another strong man or strong woman rises up to take the helm and to get the people get behind that person, and they, and they raise up an army, and they go in, and they roll in with their tanks and their guns and their helicopters and their planes and their bombs and their smart missiles and their drones and all these, and they, and they do some damage. They reestablish some borders for a time and then they're gone. And this happens over and over and over and over and over again on the earth. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem, into a place where, let's just be honest, they tried to kill him twice. He comes in Jerusalem, he, he brings no weapons, he brings no army. He brings the truth and he lays his life down in sacrificial love. And over the course of time, ever since that happened until this day, there have been people from every tribe, tongue, language where that message has penetrated, where the good news of Jesus Christ has reached. There's been people from every group that have been drawn 
to Him, that have dedicated their lives to Him, that we have common brotherhood and sisterhood with them, and we are encouraged to do as they do, to sacrificially love and to sacrifice for the good of others and for the truth of God. And it is unstoppable. There's no comparison. And so, we need to think about how we live our lives, folks. We need to think about whether, whether we're living our lives for the next strong leader to rise up or if we're going to throw our weight and our effort behind the leader that we already have, Jesus Christ. We're going to dedicate ourselves to His ways. Now, living in this world right now and trying to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ while simultaneously the citizen of a country, that's a complex thing. Should Christians run for office? Yes, they should. Should Christians vote in elections? That's a matter of conscience, but I would encourage you, yes, I think we probably should. You know, these are, these are complicated things, but what is not complicated at all is that our job here is to be His witnesses, to operate our lives according to His law because it is good. And because as we witness, we change hearts and minds. We don't point a gun at someone and say, conform to this or else we say Jesus loves you, follow him. So the answer to the big question today is this. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was not clean and simple. It was messy and complex. There was a whole lot of political stuff going on, as is there in our day as well. The reality, this reality helps us to understand that we must be focused on our mission as Jesus was, even in the midst of the chaos even in the midst of the chaos. There's a lot that could be said on this. And again, I, I want to point you to study the, study the Word of God. Look at that uh, reading sheet. I think it'll be edifying to you. A few possible applications. Number one, realize that the concept of waiting until things calm down is a false idea. Jesus could have said, you know what, guys? Let's not go into Jerusalem at the Passover. That's a bad idea. But, you know, the city is crazy. There's all this security. Let's wait till another time. No, he went during Passover. Um, some folks could say, you know, I'm going to witness, but let's, let's let things calm down in the culture a little bit. That's a false idea. We have to learn to be witnesses in the midst of the chaos. So maybe make a list of the things that are holding you back or, or ways that you can stay focused on being witnesses for Jesus Christ in the midst of real life right now. And then thirdly, and this is a thread I think that runs through this whole week in the narrative, which is Jesus is operating his life in the fear of the Lord, and so many others are operating their lives in the fear of man. So we have to be like, we have to be like our king, right? Let's operate our lives in the fear of the Lord and not in the fear of man. What can they do to us? Kill us? Kill our bodies? Eternity awaits, right? Eternity awaits mock us and run us down in the name of Jesus? Let's be like the disciples and say that we were privileged that we got to suffer for the sake of the name. 